Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we are doing our monthly Paper Scraps episode where we answer your TV writing questions as well as look at some of the latest TV writing news. So let's get started. So first up, we just want to thank some of our new patrons who have signed up to support the podcast. We really appreciate each and every one of you who continue to support us each week and the new folks who are signing on. So a really big thank you to Joao, Emily, Angela, Rom, Emma, and Adrienne. We're glad to have you on board. Thank you for subscribing to the Paper Team at Patreon. And uh, just in case, for those unfamiliar with our Patreon campaign, we actually have cheat sheets of popular episodes that we release on the Patreon, including in April, our sixth cheat sheet on tone and TV writing, as well as this month, uh, the cheat sheet all about teasers and cold opens. Plus, we also have a ton of behind-the-scenes content, including content about the mentorship and Paul's writing process and how he's addressing our notes. Yeah, you also get some cool little insights into our recording process. We'll take pictures, we'll make posts, all that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, those cheat sheets are really handy. Just a, a very quick summary of all the stuff we discussed. So you can take a glance if you ever need to a refresher on any of those topics. And remind us where our listeners can uh, subscribe to our Patreon campaign. You can find that at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So we'll see you there. And the other thing we did want to mention is front of the podcast, Aaron Tracy. So Aaron actually has this great screenwriting podcast called To Live and Dialogue in LA. They record this at his class. He's a screenwriting professor at Yale University and also a working TV writer, feature writer, etc. And they have some amazing conversations on this podcast with screenwriters like Paul Atencio, uh, Larry Karaszewski, Gina Gianfrido, Nancy Myers, Terry Winter, just like some real titans of the industry who have worked on huge shows over many years. And it's just a, it's a fascinating look and interview and a learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. And he also interviews a occasionally journalists and it's all kind of like in-depth uh, sit downs with those people as they sort of make it. it's almost like a masterclass in a way where they talk about you know the careers and their advice for a whole episode in his class yeah it kind of reminds me of i guess a cross between like the q a with jeff goldsmith or seeing that talking about a movie except it's just about this one person so definitely recommend you guys all check that out it's a great discovery so you can just google to live and dialogue and now like that's actually a cool title to live and die a log <laughs> ironically filmed in yale <laughs> I, ideally, that's where all the students will be going to LA and to die there. <laughs> well, on that note, let's move on to our next topic. Let's dig into some of the questions that you guys sent us. And first of all, we received a pretty extensive email from Varta Tawarsian thanking us for the podcast, as well as asking us a bunch of specific questions that we would like to answer. So let's read part of his letter. Dear Alex and Nick, my name is Varta, and I am a screenwriter who works on small independent projects. I graduated a few years ago from AFI, and now I'm taking baby steps into the industry. I only recently discovered your podcast, and I'm so grateful for it. It's absolutely the most helpful and insightful reference I have for all matters regarding screenwriting and TV writing. Even though I've only listened to the most recent episodes, I feel like you've already covered so many of my questions. I still have a few left, though, so that's why I'm writing to you. Question number one, how close is too close, creatively speaking? I recently saw a movie that has a similar premise to a show I'm working on without giving the specifics. Some of the central ideas overlapped, but in terms of how the concept was developed and executed, the genre, the tone, the voice of the movie was very different from what I'm trying to do. I'm curious to know if you've given up on a project because you heard or saw something that was too similar or you know thought might run into legal issues. 
I just wanted to know if I should try to change as much as possible so I can differentiate from the movie I saw or just write my vision and not worry about repetition since, you know, there are no new ideas, just new ways of recycling them. Right. I think this is a great question. And uh, although we didn't really cover it in depth in the podcast in the past, I can speak at least from my own experience uh, because I'm going through this process right now. I have an original pilot sample that is actually extremely similar to one of the pilots that just got picked up by a major network and in fact probably will get picked up to series. So in my mind, there's a couple of things to think about. The first thing is how close realistically is that other show or movie to what you're working on? Uh, in my case, the pilot being made is similar, not just on a logline level, but also in execution. Uh, characters may not be the same, but uh, the tone is similar. Some of the backstories are similar. The characters' emotional journeys are, um, some of the setups, or work environments, and so forth. So that's one question to ask. The second question is more in terms of where you are personally in the process. For example, if you are at the logline or maybe the basic overview stage, then I would argue that it might be a good thing to move on. But if you are into like a polished outline or a draft, then you should probably go ahead and finish what you have just to have that sample. Even though it may be similar, I think your execution and your perspective is still unique enough that it will differentiate it from the other thing that's existing. Absolutely. And I actually just looked back in our archives and we do have an episode on this topic called Inspiration versus Stealing in TV Writing, which is PT58. So if you did want to go back there and take a listen to some of the stuff we discussed there, I think we'll cover it in a lot more depth. But just on my end, to answer your question, I'm usually of the opinion that, like you said, it's all about the execution. There's no copywriting of ideas, even if it's a similar genre or topic or area that's being done, everyone is going to write something in a very different way. So it's going to be very unlikely that it's going to be word for word what someone else has already done with that. So as long as you are, and you should be thinking about this at every stage of TV writing, how am I making this unique? How am I making it personal to me that only I could write this? And then you're probably not going to run into that problem because even if something is in the same setting or explores the same historical event, yours is going to be such a different take that no one could possibly say, well, this is the same. Yeah, you can compare something like Weeds to Breaking Bad because both of those are about corrupt protagonists dealing drugs in a suburban environment, right? But Weeds is a half-hour dramedy on, I believe it was Showtime, and Breaking Bad is obviously a one-hour drama on AMC, and the execution of both of those ideas is very dissimilar. And I remember Vince Gilligan talking at length about how when he was pitching Breaking Bad, people would constantly remind him that weeds existed. And so Breaking Bad is too similar. But if you look at it, practically speaking, Breaking Bad is very different from weeds beyond the basic logline. So I think you should look at not just the logline, but and not even just about the execution, but the whole package, because I highly doubt that what you have created is so identical to this other person's project. Even something like Deep Impact in Armageddon, even, you know, Ants and A Bug's Life, you do have those cases of parallel development. But practically speaking, those movies are always different. And so much of it really is just random coincidence that you can't avoid anyway. Like even in a writer's room on one of the shows I've been on, we had crafted this entire episode based around this particular concept and we were just about ready to go to draft. And then we literally went and watched a a big Hollywood movie that came out that night. And the next day we all went in and went, well, they just did the exact same thing that we were going to do. And this isn't going to come out for a year. And we don't want people thinking that we're ripping this off exactly. So let's change our ideas. So, you know, it just really depends on the situation you're in and how similar something is to it, whether you want to avoid that, but it's so common it happens to everyone. And I would not stress too much about it. Yeah. And I would say like, even in the worst case scenario where your content is nearly identical to that other person's content, which I doubt it is, but let's assume it is then 
Perhaps you should congratulate yourself for creating something that someone else bought. It may not be your project. If you were theoretically in another uh, part of your career, you would be the one selling this project. Mm-hmm. So it clearly shows that you have your ear on the ground and you know, you know, sort of what is popular or what is interesting. And that does mean that you have an interesting perspective because you're selecting this project that got sold. Maybe not by you, but still. So I think that is still a celebration to have. Exactly. And legally, obviously, we're not lawyers. We're not qualified to give legal advice. But it it is highly unlikely you're going to get in any sort of legal trouble that would stick from that. A, that would have to know about your script. It would have to be in some sort of position of of being made. And then it would have to, the similarities, there would have to be some sort of proof that you had literally copied off of their pages for you to get into any sort of legal trouble. So I would not worry about that. Uh, Excuse me. I'm Alex Freeman Esquire. (laughs) That's my secret last name. All right, let's move on to the second question that we got. And uh, let me read this one. And the second question is, do you have specific metrics that you use to determine the quality of your dialogue? In other words, have you found a magic formula you apply in every case? I have a friend that cannot bear to see a word sticking out on a separate line. So she'll do anything possible to have neat blocks of dialogue on the page and no hanging or standalone words. I know that's more of a visual guide than anything else, but I'm just curious to see if you have any pet peeves like that. Good question. I don't think there's any sort of like yardstick by which to measure dialogue. I think that you write the first version that goes down on the page. And then more than often I come back and I realize that I don't need half of those words and I will will refine it into something that sounds more like the character or is more approachable. You know, a lot of the time there's a different cadence to writing and hearing it in your head than will actually be spoken. So I encourage you to read your dialogue out and be like, well, is this something an actor could actually wrap their lips around and say in a naturalistic way? Or does this sound like I'm trying to write some beautiful prose on the page that sounds nice when I read it in my head? Yeah, I definitely agree that the table read aspect is very important, especially in comedy. But I know for drama, it's also equally important. As for the writing itself, I mean, Everyone has their own process. Like Nick said, maybe you can write the bad version of it all first and then massage it into something that the characters will be saying. Personally, I like to envision scenes. So the dialogue to me is like an integral part of the exchange because every scene should be in essence uh, sort of a battle for power. Uh, Maybe not in the same way that Succession does it, but this should be inherent conflict, right? Like the classic uh, advice is to always have someone who wants out of the scene and someone who wants in, in the scene. In terms of what you brought up about the neat blocks of dialogue. I am someone who is a bit of a a control freak in that way. I hate widows and I will exactly do what your friend does, which is rephrase things so that uh, there's no hanging chad. Now, with that said, the rephrasing still has to be relevant to, you know, whether the character says whatever. So I'm not going to sacrifice, if there's an exquisite line that I just adore, I'm not going to sacrifice that just for the OCD aspect of it. However, that is definitely something I, I keep in mind and consider, but I do consider it at the very tail end of the process. It's not something that I put at the top of my list. Yeah, I'm similar. I I do like to move things around and rewrite things such that it fits properly, especially on not just a dialogue single line level, but on a page level, if I'm building towards a big moment and that kind of thing, you know, I'd want it to happen by the end of the page and not, you know, leave people as you're going over the page and finding the thing. And that way, I guess it's a little bit like comic books with the lettering and the page turns and things like that. And in my mind, at least, I like to present my screenplays and my TV plays in, in that kind of way. But like Alex said, if you start worrying about that too early or as you're writing it, everything's going to get shifted anyway. You're going to go back, you're going to rewrite, you're going to delete things, things are going to get pushed forward. And if you've been 
putting extra spaces in lines to try and get them onto the next thing, everything's going to get messed up. So that would be the very, very last thing I ever worry about when you're doing your final polish. Yeah, I would actually take a look at our PT51 episode. We did a whole episode about TV dialogue. And in it, I do remember we discussed sort of ways uh, that we come up with dialogue. And specifically, one of those ways is by listening to how people talk. Now, obviously, the way uh, dialogue works in TV and movies is very specific, right? It's not necessarily a naturalistic kind of dialogue. However, you will have your own perception on what makes natural dialogue. And another thing in terms of polishing your dialogue is if you use Final Draft or any screenwriting software, you have the ability to extract reports on specific characters, thereby extracting everything they say. So you can track at the end of the process sort of how someone talks throughout your entire script, and then hopefully you can make those little adjustments to make sure it's all coherent. Yeah, those reports are super helpful in terms of A, making sure your character's through lines and stuff are tracking all the way through, but also making sure the voice is consistent. You know, the character feels like the character the whole way through and you're not just flipping and switching around. So I definitely recommend those. Yeah, it's not just a little bits of dialogue. It's also sort of how they speak. For example, you know, Spock doesn't use contractions. If uh, there's an isn't, he should be saying is not. Or some character may be saying ain't instead of is not. So there's little things like that that you can definitely catch easier once you export that report. Great. So question number three, uh, as writers who are not native to the U.S., do you still have trouble writing material that is culturally specific to this country? I'm also an immigrant. And even though I've been here for 10 years now, I still restrain from trying to portray certain authentically American themes and characters or periods in recent history that people have lived through and know much more about than me. Well, first of all, uh, we got to say immigrants. We get, we get the, the job, job done, done. right? <laughs> now, with that said, I definitely agree that culturally speaking, I mean, personally, and this is something we can only speak, you know, on a personal level, everyone will have their different experiences and their different perspectives, right? That's why you are you and not someone else. So you, even as an immigrant, you have your own perspective on, for example, American culture, right? You have maybe your own idiosyncrasies that you've experienced being an immigrant in this country. Um, so I think those are elements that you can bring to the table of your writing. In terms of talking and tackling certain issues, I mean, that's what writing is about, right? Everybody is going to be writing different things and be interested in different elements. I would argue that as an immigrant, you have perhaps a, I don't know about a better vision, but you have a more unique vision because you're coming from the outside and looking into someone else's culture. But obviously all that will depend on the person and who you are and the kinds of topics or themes you want to explore. Yeah, I would never tell someone not to write something. You know, that's kind of our job as writers. However, I would always tell you to ask yourself, why am I writing this? And why am I the right person to write this? You know, is there a particular thing or event in recent history or, or, or part of a culture or whatever that fascinates you and that you have some sort of personal connection to or you can relate to in some way on your own? Then great, then find your way into that and have a go at writing it. But if you're just sitting around being like, well, there seems to be a lot of interest in writing for Asian characters these days and having their stories told or trans characters or something like that. And you're just like, well, I'm going to try and write that to jump in on a marketing bandwagon or whatever. And you don't actually have any real feel for the authentic experience of those people. You know, I would ask, why are you writing that in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with everything you're saying. And to tack onto that, I would argue that if you're not familiar with any of those, you know, cultures, experiences, then it behooves you to research that, right? Like ask people, interview people, read books, watch movies, whatever it takes, uh, hashtag Avengers Endgame, <laughs> to get those stories right, right? Like, because even though you're a writer, you don't know everything. You just have your own perspective because you're one human being. The more insight you can get from other people, the better as a writer and a person you will be. Right. And I think that unless you have a really good reason 
and connection to it to be writing it. I'm of the opinion that I would err towards allowing those people to tell their stories in an authentic way. However, like Alex said, if it's such that you have, you know, a writing assignment from a studio, or it's just something that drives you this so much that you have to write about this, like you said, do your research, and also involve people from those communities who have those experiences and talk to them, bring them on as advisors, pay them for their time, whatever it happens to be, so that you can do the best possible job. Varta asks, I just heard about your teaser submissions and I would have loved so much to submit mine. Are there going to be any other opportunities to benefit from your mentorship or did I just miss this amazing chance? Well, for now, obviously, uh, Paper Tease submissions are closed. However, we have this great mentorship going on with Paul and what we really, really want from all of our listeners is for you to basically play along at home. We want you to be following those same steps and stages and coming up with your ideas and with your outlines and with your first drafts. Like We'd really love for our community to rally together and and all go through this process together and ask for the advice of people around you and get their feedback. So in that way, I think you can benefit from this. And that has always been the goal is to make this process extremely transparent such that other people can do the exact same thing. 100%. And also I would recommend that you join our Facebook group at pbdmlco slash group to participate in those discussions with peers, sharing the content like their series overview or outlines or whatever they may have and exchanging notes and feedback with each other because that's how you grow as a writer not by ostracizing yourself but by really joining communities and discussing with your peers about your content yeah and if you want to take it to the next step again you can also join our patreon at which point you'll get even more access to that mentorship process to updates and to the other patreon members and that again is another great community uh, that can come together and and work on these sorts of things also you know who knows in the future we might be doing another round of mentorships or another round of paper tease submissions or whatever it may be time will tell but for now make the most of what's there and now let's look at another question sent to us by emily haggett and emily asks i'm a longtime listener multi-time caller much like nick i aspire to write for animation most of my original pilots i write are animation and very fantasy driven I've had problems in the past where people were not big fans of my scripts, but as soon as I tell them it is supposed to be an animated show, they love it. I was wondering if I should indicate anywhere in my script, like either on the cover page or in the line of stage direction, that it is an animated series. Thank you for all the hard work you put into Paper Team and giving something to writers of all skill levels and backgrounds to listen to. Keep up the great work. Yeah, that's another great question, Emily. I have run into similar problems before in the past where I have written a sitcom half hour script and people read it and they're like, wow, this is going to be way too expensive. You'd have to have all these VFX and giant robots and whatever. I'm like, oh, was it not clear that this was animation? Like I thought (laughs) the tone was so ridiculous that like, why would anyone ever do this in live action? But I think people just kind of have this default switch in their head when they're reading. It's like, here are live people and this is what they're doing. So I did actually at one point start writing on the cover page an animated sitcom pilot or you know an animated sitcom or whatever i don't think it's necessary but if you are worried that it straddles the line such that it might be misinterpreted that's a good way to do it i've also put a picture of the animated characters like a sketch that i've paid an artist friend to do on the cover page as well as an alternative to that or just when you're emailing your script out to people or telling them about it, sending it to them, just mention this is an animated thing. Uh, maybe in the fellowships and such, it's not as easy to do that. But when you're sending it to friends and to executives and to whoever around the place, just make a note of that and then they'll understand. Yeah, I definitely agree. At least from the reader perspective, you got to manage audience expectations, right? I think that comes into play in this way where, like you just said, most readers are going to default to live action for some reason. So if you start reading a script that 
seems like it may be animated and you gotta err on the side of caution and put your best foot forward so that the reader doesn't have to do the mental gymnastics of understanding what this thing is. You gotta be as clear cut and as straightforward as possible. At least that's my perspective. Obviously everyone has their different ideas and expectations. However, your job as a writer on some level is to manage readers' expectations and to walk them through your script and your idea, especially if you're at a stage where this is a sample project. This is something that you want people to like and to like you. So there's nothing wrong with highlighting elements that may be obvious to you, but especially if you're getting the negative feedback from live action people, then I would argue that this is something that should be included in some capacity. Yeah, it certainly helps to have a piece that will stand alone and you don't require explaining or context outside of that to to have that happen. So you know, like Alex said, anything you can do within the script itself to to make it abundantly clear that this is animated and heightened and that sort of thing might help as well. All right, it is now time to cover some TV writing news, including some from April, since we actually skipped last time our Paper Scraps episode in favor of our acclaimed Inside the TV Writing Program series. <laughs> so let's get into it. Where are some of the latest breaking sort of adjacent news? Well, we're going to enter the Twitterverse right now Ooh. and take a look at some of the honestly awesome stuff that has been happening between TV writers and aspiring TV writers online and some of the hashtags that have popped up in the wake of the whole WGA ATA separation to support other writers and help get them staffed in a world without agents. One of those things has been the compiling of lists of either diverse writers or WGA writers with interesting backstories. So one of those hashtags is obviously hashtag WGA staffing boost, which has led people to tweet their bios to get a boost about who they are as a person and sort of sell themselves as a writer. Yeah, so I believe it originally started with the WGA Solidarity Challenge hashtag with, was it Jose or Javi? I think Javi started it. Yes, yeah. So uh, Javier Grio and Moxwatch started this thing with the Solidarity Challenge about reading lower-level writers, other people in WGA, putting yourself out there. And then uh, Latoya Morgan, one of our former guests, jumped on that and put up this WGA staffing boost hashtag as well. And like Alex has said, it's led to this outpouring of writers basically pitching themselves and putting themselves out there and other people jumping on and being like, I would love to read your script, whether they're a writer or an exec, whoever, um, people just helping other people out. And it's been fantastic. Yeah. And even if you're uh, on the lower level of your career and you're just starting out, I would advise you to look at all those tweets just to see how people sell themselves. And I'm sure this could actually be for us a topic to dig into in the future, but just having that access to so many writers, whether they're low levels, mid levels, and even some higher level writers tweeting publicly, what is their sort of personal logline? What is their personal story? Why are they the ones to be staffed amongst everybody else? I think that's a great lesson that people can learn and sort of dig through and take onto themselves. Absolutely. I think a lot of writers are shy. They're nervous. They're, you're not willing to talk highly of themselves in a way, you know, find it difficult to put yourself out there and be like, hi, this is why I am right for the job and that kind of thing. And that's honestly something that you need to get used to, to bury that humility sometimes. And, you know, obviously not be arrogant about it or anything, but understand what your strengths are and what you can bring to places because that's what you're doing. You're out there promoting yourself and you're trying to give people a reason to hire you. 
but yeah, as, as we said, they've now been compiling a lot of these and people like the recommendations from people who have read the scripts of these writers and enjoyed them. The higher level writers have been like, this person's great. They're so good at genre, blah, blah, blah. And there's been a bunch of people compiling those into lists like Liz Alper, who was also one of our former guests on the podcast. She has put together a list of all these high level recommendations. And there's a number of other lists floating around for people of color, women, uh, different groups out there. So definitely uh, check a number of those out. Yeah, it's interesting because we had Liz and her friend Kai on the podcast a few weeks ago to talk about writing samples and preparing for TV staffing. And this was before the whole Guild ATA fight really started in earnest. So I think that was PT 119, if you want to take a look. It was a whole hour-long episode. We discussed, amongst other things, whether features are better samples than TV pilots or specs, or should writers chase trends? There's a lot of questions that we discuss with our guests. And so if you're interested at all in the idea of staffing, uh, which you should be if you're listening to this, then definitely check that episode. Yeah. And I think on a broader level, this ties back into uh, an idea that we discussed a few episodes ago about this evolution of access in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that we can maybe dig into postmortem, but I did want to look at sort of the evolution of access on the basic level. And in my mind, if you were to track, and this is maybe a discussion we can have some other time more in depth, but I did want your thoughts, Nick, on sort of this idea of evolution of access, specifically with how people are getting staffed now, because here's my hot take, burning take. So up until maybe let's say the late 90s, early 2000s, the way people were staffed. If you were to pull, obviously this data doesn't exist, but if you were to ask staff writers and lower levels, how did you get that job in the 90s and early 2000s up to then, they would probably tell you through some kind of spec script, right? Like Mm -hmm. the classic example is people submitting a Star Trek episode and get staffed or a freelance episode, right? That was kind of the, the model was freelance model. They would pitch themselves and their script and then get hired off of that. Then because of the amount of people submitting specs and uh, the limited openings, the model transitioned into an apprenticeship model, right? The idea of grinding it out. You gotta be a PA, you could be a writer's assistant. You gotta be doing all these things to move up the ladder. And hopefully if you land on a good show, then you're gonna be staffed down the line. And I feel like if you were to pull most people people from, let's say, the 2000s up until, you know, maybe right now or last year, who are staff writers and, and lower levels, how did you get a position? Obviously, putting aside the classic, uh, oh, my showrunner was a friend of my dad or whatever. I'm just saying like the majority of those people would tell you, well, I was an assistant and I grinded it out until I became a staff writer. Now, here's my take. I feel like we're moving into like a third phase of breaking into the industry. And I think part of it is- Phase three industry end game. (laughs) Sure, exactly, no spoilers. Uh, To that point, I do feel like we're moving to this new era where the way people are getting staffed is moving rapidly because even though a lot of people would love to get those assistant jobs, there's not that much upward mobility as there was a decade ago. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, multiple issues, including limited uh, access. I think that's also because there's a fewer episodes, a smaller writer rooms. I think all that just compounds and compounds until we get to a point where now the guild is already playing catch up with all their low level guild members who are not staffed and should be staffed. And so I think it creates sort of like this bottleneck. And part of it is obviously the whole like WG staffing boost, which is great. But I think that's just one way that people are moving outside of the traditional assistant route to get staffed. Right. It almost feels bizarre that in this era of peak TV with so many shows on the air, 
there is a decreasing number. I mean, and this is not based on the evidence, but just anecdotally, uh, it's harder and harder to get staffed at those lower levels. And there's a decreasing number of spots for them. You know, like you said, number of issues, higher level, heavier weighted rooms, smaller seasons, less chance to move up the ladder. Not everything is a 22 episode season anymore that runs for 10 seasons. So you don't have that kind of ability. So it it does feel like the squeeze is coming both on the mid-levels and the lower level writers. You know, I guess I'm optimistic that this whole solidarity and unity sort of thing that has arisen out of this might open up more access, especially to people who have traditionally been denied that access. A hundred percent. I definitely hope that is the case. I feel like there are other solutions that, for example, the guild could do. So mm-hmm. we just mentioned a few problems, right? This idea of there's only eight episodes a season instead of 22, or those heavy weighted rooms up top instead of lower down. You know, the guild could mandate that lower level positions need to be on every show ever, right? Like you can, there's ways of, I don't know if it's the guild's issue or if it's the studio's issue, whatever the case, maybe I'm saying that giving those openings and forcing those openings to exist is one way of solving the issue. I'm not saying, you know, it's a one issue fixes all kind of thing, but I'm just saying like we just mentioned, the bottleneck is happening on the lower scale, not really on the higher end because the studios and those production companies and those networks are buying the shows from the same time people as well. So I think that's also on the mid-level, there's a lack of moving up, right? A lot of mid-levels are not given those opportunities to move up because the same 20 producers are doing the same 100 shows. Right, exactly. And as fantastic as this, the fight is to eliminate packaging, unfair packaging fees and things like that, it, at this point, it is going to largely still help the higher level riders in the short term. And then lower and mid-level riders may even suffer negative consequences in the short term because of some of these things. So I think that the next step for the WGA and for, for riders is really to put that focus back on how can we ensure that this access is continuing beyond just the, the good nature of people on Twitter? How can we send that elevator back down to the people who want to get that first staff writing job or the people who are in the first staff writing job and need to get the second job? You know, like you said, mandating there must be a staff writer on every WGA show, or there must be one freelance episode, regardless of how many episodes have been ordered, things like that. Yeah. And that's the problem is that I think some of those solutions are partly already there, except nobody's policing them, right? Like I know personally, at least three different shows with rooms that do not have a lower writer on them. And they're very top heavy rooms. But if you look at even something like True Detective, True Detective had one, if not two writers, even Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones has D&D, and then you got Brian Cogman, and then you got David Hill, and then maybe you got an assistant in there somewhere. <laughs> it's basically like five dudes writing this insane show, and obviously they have limited episodes and so forth, but I'm sure The Long Night, the HBO uh, Game of Thrones prequel, is not too different either. I'm sure it's not 20 writers. I'm sure it's not even 10 writers. So I'm just saying like there's ways of creating those opportunities from the lower level as well as helping the mid-levels move up and train them in a way that they're the ones that are going to be the showrunners of tomorrow and arguably the showrunners of today. Right. I think if this continues to be ignored or other things are focused on over the top of it, we are going to end up in this kind of stagnant situation where there is like not only a barrier to entry in the first place, but then there's a barrier right in the middle where you can never get to where you need to get anymore. And that's not healthy for the industry. And that is actually my hot take is that we are already there. If you look at most people participating in the solidarity challenge, which is a great thing, but like a lot of those people have to be, you know, for example, they have to be repped in some capacity. They have to already be a guild member and they have to already have been staffed. So those are the three biggest barriers of entry for any new person trying to be a TV writer. And if those people who've already succeeded in overcoming those boundaries and those barriers of entry cannot get staffed, 
in 2019. But what about the hundreds and thousands of other people who are trying to get in? That's the issue is that's where the bottleneck is. Exactly. It's kind of surprising and a little scary to look at some of those tweets from people who have 10, 15 years of experience writing on TV shows with all these great credits to still be out there struggling, putting it out there to Twitter to try and get their next job. They might not have worked for two years or something like that. You know, that is a just, I guess, a part of the nature of the industry and the instability, which we always mention and talk about. But it feels like that shouldn't be the case if everything's working as it should. A hundred percent. And I mean, we will monitor the situation on our end, but it's interesting to be sort of in the thick of it and be able to discuss it in a way that we're doing, because it's not something that most people talk about. If you look at, obviously we've done many episodes about breaking into the industry and we, uh, a lot of other podcasts have talked about the classic assistant route, but ultimately I feel like that's just one route that is getting less and less important than it is about sort of the relationships, which obviously Relationships have always been a huge part of the industry, but uh, codifying this whole system in such a way may be a detriment if those opportunities are not given on a broader scale. Right. There's so much focus on breaking into the industry in the first place that sometimes we forget that that's when the whole new game starts up again. Yeah. (laughs) The game of staff. You either win or you die. Staffing is coming. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to another news, and that is an article that uh, was published by Deadline about this idea that Netflix turns series as soon as they reach three seasons. And by turning, I mean they cancel shows that reach three seasons to create new ones. And we will link that article in the show notes. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels like this is the new version of hitting 10 seasons or syndication, but for Netflix, it's like, we've got our three seasons. That's enough to have someone sit around and watch, I don't know, 60 hours of content or whatever on our service and then go on to the next show. They're not, and we've always said this, that Netflix is not as interested in creating a huge audience base for one particular show to follow it through a number of seasons. They would rather have the broadest number of shows with the broadest number of interest to pull in all those niches to get the widest pool of subscribers rather than the deepest pool. Yeah, and to reset this for our listeners who may not be familiar with the article, the article explains that Netflix, as soon as they reach maybe like 60 hours of content, that's enough content to create something for people to click on. And anything extra beyond that, a fourth season, fifth season, is has a little bit of a diminishing return compared to creating new content for new viewers. So I think that's the problem. And then you look at shows that got canceled recently, like Santa Clarita Diet, and uh, obviously One Day at a Time, you have a lot of that content that reaches three seasons, and Netflix just doesn't want to pay extra royalties to all the actors, the writers, or the producers, so they just cancel the show, and then they move on to the next project. Yeah, and I think this is especially likely to happen if Netflix isn't also the studio on it. And we've seen that before in the traditional network models. Anytime you're sharing a show between a studio on a network, you're splitting the profits, you're not getting the full licensing fees, it's staying, it's not vertically integrated in the company. So those shows tend to be more likely to be canceled or let go. And the ones that both the studio and the network owns it are likely to be kept. And I think a similar thing is happening with Netflix, looking at all of the Marvel shows, all of that money is going straight back to, to Disney and to whatever. And so they're like, well, it's kind of outlived its usefulness for us as a distributor, we're just going to go create our own originals that will replace that. And the worst thing about it all is that they have these kind of clauses in the contracts to stop them from taking it to other places so that someone else doesn't get to just profit off of all of their hard work. Yeah, and especially if you look at the shows that get canceled, we're talking about shows with, at the very least, mid-level success. Because you need to be arguably a Stranger Things level success to go past a third season. And if you look at any show on Netflix that has gone over 
three seasons and obviously a Netflix original series here, I guarantee you that those shows are extremely, extremely popular. And as sad as it is to say, One Day at a Time, which was a success, wasn't a huge success enough for Netflix to continue keeping it, which is kind of scary to see that you need to be sort of a juggernaut for Netflix to keep you beyond three seasons. Right. The bar needs to be a Game of Thrones or a Stranger Things that is the modern version of event TV in order for them to be like, yes, we're willing to continue basically not losing money on this, but, you know, willing it for it to be that kind of lost leader type show where it's like, this will attract people. We will get actual subscriptions because just because they want to watch this one show. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how that's going to impact the overalls that they have, because obviously they signed those hundred million plus dollar overalls with huge names like Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, Sean Levi, a bunch of other people that are used to those shows that last seasons after seasons after seasons. And if they come in and Netflix basically tells them straight up, well, your shows can only last three seasons or they discover it as the show progresses, I think that could be bad news for Netflix in the long run. So how are they going to sort of calm the fears of the creators who presumably want their shows to last longer than three seasons? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point. I think not only are these creators that they are hiring, like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes, people who create shows that last for 10 seasons, but they're people who create an entire suite of shows. Like both of those, those showrunners have maybe five, six shows to their name that have all been gone on to be incredibly successful. So maybe that's what they were looking for is people who can keep churning out new shows for a shorter amount of seasons under their Netflix model. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. There's a quote in the article that I found really interesting from, you know, some anonymous industry insider who said 50 is the new 100. You know, like we've always said, 100 was that classic milestone of now we can put it into syndication and we'll make money off of it forever. That's a long dead model at this point, essentially. So it's it's very unlikely for modern shows these days to get past that 50 episodes, five-ish season mark, really, these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I would contend that 50 is presumably five seasons as well, especially in the format that we are in right now, where seasons last between you know, eight to 12 episodes that uh, reaching that 50 episode mark is five seasons as well. So I, I wouldn't argue that most shows on Netflix that are three seasons don't have 50 or 60 hours. They have maybe 30 hours to their name. So that's actually pretty sad. Again, this is something that we just talked about minutes ago about the sort of the evolution of access, that if you have 30 hours over three years of, uh, of episodes, that's a very finite amou- amount of content. And even more so when you realize that those rooms are probably staffed with, you know, four or five people. So even though we're in the era of peak TV, in reality, the number of episodes produced, right? And maybe that that is the true uh, test of it all. It's not really the amount of shows, it's really the amount of episodes, individual episodes being written. How many of those are being written by individual separate writers? Right. There might be 450 shows on air right now, but if you looked at how many actual episodes of produced TV, it could be the equivalent of what 250 or 300 shows was years ago. Exactly. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see where that leads us. And uh, speaking of leading us, the last thing we did want to mention is Disney Plus. As Disney just announced their new OTT service, which will cost only $6.99 a month with a crap ton of Disney content, including the entirety of The Simpsons. 
Nick is very excited right now. <laughs> yes, I'm grinning over here. No, it's interesting because like so many people, when they heard about the announcement, Disney Plus almost rolled their eyes you know, years ago when it was first uh, you know, made known. And they were like, oh, great, another streaming service. How am I going to afford all these different streaming services? Whatever. They were almost like already boycotting it in their minds. But now they have really made a competitive buy into this streaming market by lowering their prices that much. And again, this is, I feel like, a loss leader type model. They're definitely spending way more money on Disney Plus than they're going to recoup on their subscriptions in the first year or multiple years, but Disney has enough money to go around. So what they want is those subscribers. And then they're going to do the same thing Netflix did and build up and out from there. Exactly. I mean, that is basically what they're doing. They're playing Netflix at their own game because Netflix started out really, really cheap. And then casually, you know, a year later, it's $7.50 and then $8 and then $9 and $10 and so forth. So within a decade, you know, maybe it will be at 10 or $12 a month, but right now it's going to be $7 for a ton of content. So I don't know if uh, you should be holding long on Netflix stocks. I know I sold mine uh, recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the other thing about Disney Plus is that they now kind of have this monopoly on all of these different brands and contents. You're going to have all of the classic Disney movies. You're going to have all of the Marvel movies and TV shows now too. You're going to have all of the Star Wars content. So it's just like the sheer number of attractive propositions in Disney Plus is really going to be driving people there. I'm also curious how Hulu will survive now that Disney is the majority shareholder along with NBC. Yeah, I think one of his companies is selling to Disney at least 30%. So Disney will definitely keep Hulu in some capacity is my thinking. I think it'll be that kind of like um, replay type service where right, it's like right exactly. after it airs the next day you can go watch it on Hulu for a while but maybe their original content who knows how that will go. You already forgot right that in the future movies are called Disney's. That's <laughs> why we're in the era where movies become Disney's. That's what it is. So in a hundred years and on a paper team episode uh, a million <laughs> you'll be listening to us talk about TV Disney's and, uh, and Disney's. <laughs> uh, yeah so it seems that Disney has already collected almost all of the infinity stones in its <laughs> Mickey gauntlet. Pretty soon we're going to get that snap. <laughs> all right. On that note, before we go, uh, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Like we said earlier, you will get cheat sheets, exclusive content, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode, including all the articles we mentioned at paperteam.co slash 136. As always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions that you want to ask and uh, that we can answer on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we are going to be adding on to our Inside the TV Writers program uh, with our fifth episode, which will actually be with Moira Griffin from the Fox Writers Lab and getting an update on what's happening over there. It'll be very exciting, so tune in for that next week. We'll catch you then.